This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Professor Michelle Arrow, as well as Elizabeth Reed Ao and Sarah Douse. They joined me to discuss a new book called Women and Whitlam, Revisiting the Revolution. In 1973, Elizabeth Reid was appointed women's advisor to the Prime Minister, a first for Australia and the world. From 1974, Sarah Douse was the inaugural head of the Women's Affairs section in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. This was established to support Prime Minister Gough Whitlam's first women's advisor, Elizabeth Reid. Both Elizabeth and Sarah reflect together on their time and leadership within second-wave feminism and the women's liberation movement in Australia. Their work and activism within and outside the machinery of government helped to transform Australia and women's place and aspirations within it. The book's editor, Michelle Arrow, tells us about the collection of essays and why she came up with it. After a little bit of working with the panels, we've got three fascinating and brilliant guests on the show. It's an absolute honour to have them all on here together. They are Professor Michelle Arrow, who is a historian. She teaches modern history at Macquarie University. She's also the editor of a forthcoming book called Women and Whitlam, Revisiting the Revolution. It's due to be released in early April through New South Publishing. And two contributors to this fascinating book are Elizabeth Reed A.O. Now, Elizabeth is a brilliant woman in her own right. She has been a crucial part of the feminist movement, especially second wave feminism, but I'm sure the project of feminism doesn't stop ever. It's a true pleasure to welcome Elizabeth onto the show. Her background, which is relevant to this book, is that Elizabeth Reid, she in fact was appointed women's advisor to the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, and that was a first for Australia and the world, which is a very, very exciting thing. That was in the early 1970s. Then also on the show is Sarah Douse, who in a very related role, was the inaugural head of the Women's Affairs section of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which was established to support Gough Whitlam's first women's advisor, Elizabeth Reid. And Sarah is also doing great work herself, just like Elizabeth continues to do so. Sarah is also a feminist critic and artist. So it's great to have all of you on the program, very distinguished guests, And I just can't wait to have this conversation about feminism and the feminist movement, especially during the Whitlam era. I welcome you all. Michelle, hi there. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you. Hello there, Elizabeth. Hi, Amy. What a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. And hi there, Sarah. Hi. Can you hear me? We can. We can. (laughs) Loud and clear. Thank you all for joining us. It's really such an honour, as I said, to have you all here for this great conversation and what a fantastic book it is, Michelle. Now, in the past, you and I have spoken about, I guess, the Whitlam period and just how dynamic it was, how exciting it was, you know, that there was almost change in the air, really, a very watershed moment for women. And, of course, it's not just all about Whitlam. It was certainly about the women who were really blazing this trail, making this what it was, which was a revolution. So, Michelle, would you be able to talk to us about 
the seed of this book, why you decided to bring together all of these phenomenal voices so that we can hear their, I guess, first-hand accounts of the period. Yeah, so this book emerged partly out of a conference that the Whitlam Institute had way back in the kind of pre-pandemic days of late 2019, and it was organised by Susan Ryan, the late, great Susan Ryan, and the former head of the Whitlam Institute then. And I think they really you know, were driven by a desire to kind of put women's voices and women's experiences at the centre of our public memory of the Whitlam period, because I think often it's sort of still remembered. Obviously, Whitlam is kind of the centre of that public memory of the Whitlam period, but it was such an important period for women's rights and it was such an important period for working out quite distinctive and new ways of, of for women's activists to engage with government. And so the conference itself was just extraordinary women on every front and a lot of different policy areas were discussed. And then I think it was kind of the sense that, well, this is a fantastic discussion. Can we take it further and, and put it on paper in a in a book? And so I kind of picked up the, the baton on that after, of course, uh, Susan Ryan's really untimely death. And so it's been a real honour for me and a sort of a way to make a contribution in some ways to edit this book and to gather so many of these extraordinary women in one volume, but also then to have voices from women who were sort of around my age, that kind of second generation, the sort of Gen Xs who were kind of commenting on this. And then we've also got some essays from younger women who are kind of looking back and reflecting. So really what it is is trying to bring together a number of different generations of women to talk about that Whitlam legacy, but also then to reflect on its significance today. Yeah, and it's such a fantastic book in that it does certainly do that. And I know that in the past we talked about the Royal Commission into Human Relationships that was occurring and that being obviously a kind of interesting moment for you, discovering some of the gender relations and issues around gender relations at the time in the 1970s. Obviously, family violence is one of those issues which is ongoing, continues to be a major problem in Australia and the world. Let's jump to Elizabeth because, Elizabeth, your piece, which is called Whitlam and the Women's Liberation Movement, sets the the context, the foundation for our understanding of second wave feminism and the women's liberation movement. And you write so eloquently about it what the women's liberation movement was about, you know, that that you were part of this movement, what it meant to you and what you saw its role for society, that it wasn't going to be some kind of softly, softly piecemeal change approach. Could you talk to us, Elizabeth, about those, those years when you were in the women's liberation movement and the types of change that women like yourself were pushing for? Ah, that's an important question, a really important question. Recently, I I was re-watching Brazen Hussies, which is that wonderful documentary that Catherine Dwyer made about a year and a half ago on the women's liberation movement. And I watched it because I wanted to look at what were the slogans, what were the placards that women were carrying in their marches. And I was quite surprised in those days to see that there weren't that many issue-specific placards. Mm. So, of course, there was little placards on contraception, equal pay, abortion, an end of violence to women, etc., and 
and, and on the stigma of illegitimacy. But mostly, the placards were general. They were about the need for, for revolution, how, how feminism is alive and well. Women United will never be defeated, we used to sing on the streets of Australia. <laughs> and so what was happening in those days, often we see it in, in terms of what reforms were introduced. And, of course, everybody had a, a very long list of changes that were needed in women's lives. And those just overlapped to a certain extent, but not to another. But what really united us was that we couldn't do it single-handedly, that women united will never be defeated meant that we had to come together. And we had to come together in a way that was based on respect and listening. Now, now, I think if I could just expand on that for a second. Yes. We, we took our main, one of our main principles, the principle of consciousness raising. And what that meant was that we had to learn to listen to other women, to respect their stories, to listen to them, and then to reflect on what together they meant for the women of Australia. And uh, and I think it was really that banding together was really important. And perhaps that's one of the lessons that still remains of current times. I get that sense. Of certainly that impression is very strong in the, the video footage, the way that you described the time period. Another thing that came through that I wanted to touch on before I jump to Sarah was your commentary about the difference between equality and equity and the type yeah. of aim there, the, the difference in your aim and what you were hoping for was more to do with equity. Could you explain that for those of us who aren't familiar with the difference when it comes to feminism? Sure. Look, I think it's fair to say the women's liberation movement was against equality. Now, that might sound odd nowadays, but in our days... We understood what we were saying. What we were saying was that women do not want to be like men and we were not fighting to have women become men. We thought men's life was appalling, but they had to do something. They themselves had to do something about that. Or we focused on our own lives. So what we were for was a sense of fairness, you might say. We were for social justice. We were for... Um, for that sense of equity in what happened. So, yeah, we, we believe that women were different from each other or more different from each other than were women and men as groups. And we wanted that diversity recognised and held in hand at the same time as we talked about, we talked about equity of access, it doesn't mean that you have to have the same access, but it does mean something like the outcomes of access have to be fair. Mm. So, so, so we were for much, we used the word equity or social justice or, or even an end to sexism in more general terms, but, uh, but we just didn't want we weren't fighting for a greater slice of the pie. Put it that way. Yeah, I the love pie it. Represents, 
Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm signed up to this. Can we <laughs> let's keep it going? Thank you for explaining that, uh, Elizabeth. I want to draw in Sarah and then I'll come back to you, Elizabeth, because Sarah, you became head of the women's affairs section in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet which was essentially charged with undertaking the implementation of the policies that resulted from Elizabeth's consultations with community, her advice. She obviously was inundated with a lot of mail, and we'll talk about Elizabeth's role and her experience in a moment. But Sarah, your role in, I guess, the bureaucratic machinery of government must have been also a very fascinating role to be in, and certainly for a feminist as well, to perhaps have to negotiate a system that was very male-dominated and even in some cases I wonder, you know, whether a lot was called upon you to compromise. Could you talk to us about your experience in that role and, and the way that you saw that you could navigate holding your your own feminist views but also trying to achieve change for women? Oh, well, I hope I can. Uh, while I was <laughs> listening to Elizabeth, I was Thinking back on the word revolution, uh, it's not used very often nowadays, mm. certainly in terms of um, social change. But really, it was on our lips all the time, which is, and the fact that it isn't anymore says a lot about how things have developed since mm. then. But one of the things that we did before I actually took up the position that you allude to was we, we began to think in terms of not reform versus revolution, but if you like, in a kind of continuum. And we could evaluate each possible reform in terms of how it could contribute or otherwise to our notion of revolution, which was really changing not only society's attitudes towards women, but changing the way we women felt about ourselves. And I think looking back, I think we were fairly successful in terms of how women's attitudes towards themselves today differ so markedly when the women's liberation movement began. So that said, how did I become a bureaucrat? And I have to preface my remarks by saying that there was no more unlikely person <laughs> to find herself in the position I was in. But I found it fascinating. Not only did I find it fascinating because the work was so so very stimulating, and creative, because we were working from the ground up. We, we were working about policies, child care, um, single mother's benefits, uh, the retraining programs. I could go on and on. But each of these had an impact 
if on women or w needed to be created for the sake of women. And what I learned, first of all, in the prime minister's department was what a, a male dominated as it was, old fashioned as it was, what a splendid institution the Australian public service was. We didn't understand that when we were out in the streets demonstrating or holding public meetings or sitting in consciousness raising. But now, looking back, and certainly at the time, I can only appreciate the skill of some of the men, yes, men, that I worked with and their willingness to listen, which was a huge surprise. Yeah, no, it certainly sounds it. I'm sure it comes from the top too, doesn't it? Especially men have that social licence when the leader, the Prime Minister, is prioritising it by placing women's affairs in his own portfolio. Absolutely. And every time something came up, a cabinet submission or something came up, they came to me because they knew I had the a voice of Elizabeth, and she had Whitman's voice. And the question that was always on their lips is, what does the prime minister want? Mm. And the other thing that was very exciting is to, that I was a part of was building up the network of feminists, feminists mm. who came to be called Democrats inside the bureaucracy. And that was that was a big contribution. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, you know, having more women in those leadership positions in the public service would make a huge difference to better outcomes for women, uh, given how, well, all policy issues obviously affect women. When we got inside the departments itself, units, women's units mm. inside the department, not, and that, wow. was, that was connected with the top down that you talk about. Mm. That's even so revolutionary like, today. It was infiltration, if you like. <laughs> I'm wondering where those women's departments went, you know, in the Department of Finance and a DFAT and all that kind of thing. We resisted having a women's department because that in our reckoning, meant that we would be, we might have the resources that we needed, but we would be isolated. Mm. But by having this model of a hub with in prime ministers, with outliers in various key departments, that was the model that we we preferred. That's a very different model, it seems, to the one we have now, which does have, a, I guess, an office for women. I mean, it's a little bit similar, but it sounds like it was a lot more streamlined and able to work together and also across government in a way that it doesn't seem to happen necessarily at the moment. I wanted to quote you, Sarah, because you're talking about Elizabeth in your chapter. You say, as Elizabeth Reed once put it, what had been a women's movement had become a movement of women, as women became a visible presence in all walks of life. 
And Elizabeth, to bring in, you know, your key role here, which I mentioned at the start of the uh, interview, on April 8, 1973, you were appointed women's advisor to the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, which, as I mentioned, was a, a first in the world. What a clearly significant appointment this was about 400 applications and you were the chosen one, you seemingly became the figurehead for women, women's issues, the women's liberation movement, and watching some of the ABC archival footage that had you being interviewed by a various range of media, I was struck by just how difficult a time you had it. And it brought back echoes of Julia Gillard's time but it did make me think, you know, if Julia Gillard had such a bad time of it as Prime Minister in the thousands, how on earth did you manage in the 70s? You must have been a really tough woman because some of the questions you got I was appalled by. One I wanted to quote back to you, if you don't mind. You were at an initial press conference talking about your role, and I'm kind of going to paraphrase a little bit, but the journalist said, would you describe yourself as a women's liberationist? And you said, would you describe to me what you mean by it? And he said, you don't believe in marriage and only tolerate children. And you reply, on the contrary, I don't disagree with marriage and I love children. What an excellent response. And, you know, the rest of your responses are equally excellent. But I wonder, Elizabeth, could you reflect on your time and your position at that time? You know, how did it feel? How was it to experience being such a centre of attention for this very significant movement in Australia that you were, I guess, a channel of women's views and desires and and political activism through to government? Well, I want to go back first to what Sarah was saying, because it's, as you say, it's difficult nowadays to understand it, and it's very important that we do. So the women's liberation movement had a, not, a principle of non-hierarchy. And, and what Sarah was describing, its main feature was that it was not hierarchical. This women's... Uh, so what, what I'm talking about is in each department there was a women's unit. These were connected to the central... to Sarah's unit. By, it was called the hubs and spokes pattern. Now, in each department, that unit was responsible for ensuring that all of the policy that came up was scrutinised for its impact on women and were possible change to improve the impact on women. And then that department would communicate with other departments and with, the cent with Sarah's central uh, hub. Um, and in that way, we achieved a networking across the bureaucracy so I think you mentioned the concept of the whole, a whole-of-government response, but that was the difference between what subsequently occurred, which was just the marginalising of all women's business into a department of what went to an office of women's affairs. And it was important to understand that because one of the things that we were trying to do was to live our revolution. To not, we weren't trying to bring about some utopian future state, but we were trying in the act of fighting for change to live the changes we wanted. So that meant that we had to act in ways that we felt would be, were feminist, as distinct from 
more competitive or more hierarchical or more entitled responses to that. Mm. Now, um, I think that, that history will show that my treatment was, by the media was appalling, that Julia's treatment had a dimension to it that didn't exist in my time and worth highlighting. And that is the... I don't know how to describe it, but the extent to which she was trolled, the way social media um, attacked her and put forward cartoons of her which were appallingly offensive. And although I was, uh, I was belittled and humiliated and put down by the media, it, was, it didn't ever have that overt hatred of women that came through with Julia, um, both from, whether it's from Abbott or from the press or from social media. Um, so what did it feel like to be me in that job? Well, to be quite honest, I guess I've never really thought about it, partially because at the time I was just too busy. And if that's what the press wanted to say, I had to rely on the women of the state being able to work out what was and what wasn't the case. And the Women in Politics Conference was very good from that point of view because, well, the, the Women in Politics Conference, which brought together almost a 1,000 women from around Australia of all political colours, of all political interests, to talk about what it was like to be a woman in the political arena or in a political arena. And, um, and the press trivialised it and, and put people down and humiliated people. And suddenly they, they actually saw what the press was doing, what we were trying to do. And it really radicalised lots of women who otherwise would not have been radicalised. So, yes, I was exhausted by it. Yes, I was humiliated by it. Yes, my daughter and the rest of my family were appalled by it. But you, there was too much to do to stop and worry about it. I think that's, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, it reminds me of an answer you gave to Caroline Jones for Four Corners when she was saying, oh, everyone keeps saying that you don't wear makeup and, and how that's a problem. And you were just saying, well, look, I've compromised and I even wear makeup on occasion, but I'm too busy to put it on. And I just thought it was a great answer too. I agree. <laughs> I wanted to ask all of you about your reflections on where the movement of feminism the movement of women and women's liberation in its current format or mode is, you know, where are we at now for women's liberation, for the revolution that was ongoing in the, the 70s and 80s? Feel free to pick up an issue that you want to talk about or the movement as a whole and how it's, I guess, morphed into its current form in the, the thousands, in the 21st century. So I might start with you, Michelle, and then I'll go to Sarah and Elizabeth. Yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I think that the fact that we are having very different conversations about feminism than we were, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I still remember the idea that, oh, feminism, you know, it's a bit over. Everyone's, everyone's sick of it. We've all, haven't we got equality? You know, that idea that was, that was sort of feminism was, was a bit passe, I think, is definitely not the case anymore. And I think we're still, I mean, in some ways I'm, I'm 
it's it's depressing to think that some of the issues that were still were being talked about in the 1970s are still being talked about today. But of course, we also know that change doesn't happen overnight. And I think the fact that we have really managed to transform Australian public culture so these issues are part of public conversation, things like domestic violence, um, you know, those kinds of issues that would have been seen as private and not part of public discourse, the fact that they are discussed. And I think the fact that they're important politically, that they can be part of the ways that um, governments win or lose elections, I think is really interesting too. So I have a mixture of, of optimism and pessimism, as I suppose most of us do, but that's sort of where I sit at the moment, mm. I think. Yeah. And Sarah? Well, just two points. As well as being our own movement, we are part of society. And the changes that we have seen and uh, over the years reflect that. But by the same token, I take enormous heart from the fact that my granddaughters and my and younger generations believe in themselves as women. They believe that they have more to life, they can expect more out of life and should get from life a lot more than we did when we began in the 1960s and 70s. That's what we wanted to achieve, and we did achieve it. Mm, yeah. No, I, that's a great, yeah. great reflection. Uh, Elizabeth, and you get the final say. <laughs> well, what I'd like to do is put in a club for an exhibition that's currently on the National Archives of Australia, mm-hmm. which looks at the sort of small social changes that occurred in Australia in the, mainly the 60s and 70s, but across across the, the decades, and which singles out five features of them that, that people banded together to bring them about, that mm-hmm. uh, they seized the moment that writing about writing is an important form of persuasion for change, that listening is essential for change, and that all change involves being creative. And I think and it's a it's a, an exhibition about really small changes that have occurred. The role of the you know, the Country Women's League or Joe Valentine or Susan Ryan. Or, or of women's electoral lobby in bringing about the sort of changes that have radically changed, as Sarah says, have radically changed Australian society. And um, and so I think that we, whilst, whilst recently people tend to single out the uh, March for Justice being an example of of outrage expressing itself in in these these marches across Australia. Unfortunately, it's if you think of, of the change as being brought about by big things like a march for justice across Australia, you miss all the small things that bring about social mm. change and which are absolutely essential to its yep. uh, effectiveness. Mm, Thanks. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'll read out the title of the exhibition, which is Disrupt, Persist, Invent Australians in an Ever-Changing World, which is on until June at the National Archives of Australia in the ACT.
in East Block. Yes, correct. Thank you, all of you, so much for joining me. It was just so wonderful to speak with you, to hear your voices and to get a sense of what the time was like, but also your views on on present day as well. We've been talking about the book Women and Whitlam Revisiting the Revolution, which is out in April. It is Women's History Month, so perfect timing in March to have this conversation. And a big thank you to historian Professor Michelle Arrow, to Elizabeth Reed AO and to Sarah Douse. Thank you all for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Amy. Thank you. thank you so much. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.